Welcome back to Primer, the podcast about all things Amazon. I'm your host, Alex Press, joined as ever by my producer, Sarah Hurd. This week, I spoke with Alec McGillis, the author of Fulfillment, a book about Amazon that came out earlier this year. Before we get to that, here's some housekeeping. As you've heard me mention on previous episodes, I keep all of the episodes of Primer free, but to compensate me for my time, I have a Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Primer podcast. If you sign up, you can listen to the episodes there, but you also get show notes, which are brief annotated bibliographies of some key sources I used for the week's episode. You can also watch video on there of some of our interviews, and maybe most importantly, you get my infinite gratitude. To the 70 people who have subscribed, thank you. Again, you can find that at patreon.com forward slash primer podcast. As a way into my conversation with Alec, I want to discuss a recent article from Harper's Magazine about the union vote in Bessemer, Alabama. The piece is by Daniel Brooke, and it's a really good portrait of how the anti-union campaign played out at Amazon's Bessemer Warehouse, as well as of the broader forces at play in the 21st century United States that might lead an Amazon worker in Alabama to vote against unionizing. I mention it because in the wake of the Bessemer campaign, that was the question I heard the most. How could these workers vote against unionizing? Isn't work at Amazon terrible? Which was a frustrating question, because the truth is, it's miraculous when any workers do unionize in this country with all the obstacles that stand in their way. And that would have been doubly or maybe triply true in Bessemer. Unionizing is possible, of course, but that outcome is never a guarantee. Not in this country, at least. In Bessemer at the Amazon warehouse, it was a Herculean effort. Everyone in the labor movement knew that to call this a long shot was a major understatement. So seeing that at least some people who were watching from the sidelines, reading the media coverage, had come to believe that the workers would likely win the NLRB vote has been on my mind ever since. Brooks' article offers some useful insight into how it came to be that the Bessemer workers wound up opposing the union, at least some of them. I've talked and written before about some of the methods Amazon used to bust the union, and those are of course discussed in the Harper's piece. Captive audience meetings as a key site of misinformation from the company and a central means of solidifying and growing opposition to the union. Again, those are the meetings where management gets up in front of you in the warehouse, maybe in a small room that you're mandated to attend, and they start telling you about why you shouldn't join the union. Often couched as sort of hypotheticals or just sort of a friendly warning about ways the union might mislead you. The article details the barrage of texts that workers were receiving and other anti-union messaging. There's the handing out of anti-union swag, like pins or buttons on the shop floor. And it shows the surveillance of workers who were shown to have given any hearing or interest to pro-union co-workers or RWDSU, or at least the appearance of surveillance. So that's all in the article, but the author spent a lot of time on scene and otherwise talking to workers, including strongly anti-union workers. So it really crystallizes those forces, showing how they actually play out for people. But it also captures the harder-to-pin-down societal trends that pose serious obstacles to organizing. When worker power is so eroded as it is in the United States, it can be hard for people to imagine winning, especially winning against a company as powerful as Amazon. For example, the article features one worker, Carrington, who previously worked at McDonald's in a nursing home. For him, Amazon offers mobility, support, and the potential for progress towards his goals. As he tells Brooke, everybody there is family-based. Out of everywhere I've worked, this is the only place where my managers are helping me, guiding me through my ventures that I want to pursue outside of Amazon. This is the only place I've ever been where they want you to become somebody. 
By contrast, Carrington buys into the idea that the Union, despite being a place where everyone is called brother or sister, is not a family, but an extractive business. Amazon, of course, insists that it is the real family, something Carrington does come to believe. And the thing is, even as it steals his hazard pay and break time and health and well-being, if Amazon is even indirectly helping Carrington at all, that's concrete. It's something tangible the company can use to make its arguments. And it is helping indirectly. For instance, in the article, Carrington had just signed a lease for an apartment that offers Amazon workers discounted security deposits and fees. So while Carrington certainly benefits from working class struggles, codified in all sorts of laws and norms, he doesn't seem to have experienced much proof that collective action can actually win better working conditions, much less a better world. He hasn't seen it himself. When he looks out around society, maybe he doesn't see proof of it there either. The article casts this as a generational division, as that's how it frequently played out in Bessemer. Older workers who'd either been in unions themselves or knew people who had were pro-union, whereas younger workers like Carrington didn't believe in their power or the possibilities of winning what we think of as, quote, union benefits, so they could be convinced to oppose the union drive. Amazon's whispering in their ear again, remember, weeks and weeks on end, stick with me and you'll be okay. And there's also a sense building in the warehouse that should workers unionize, it's possible the warehouse would shudder. No one says that directly, but it's sort of in the background, right? It's an important point that can be lost in some of the punditry that casts all young people as socialists or pro-union or whatever. Young workers are far from unified on this. It depends on their location, both geographically and sectorally. What fraction of the class are they? While people like Carrington can certainly be moved into action, that is in fact what organizing is, it is very, very difficult. It's an important thing to take in because Amazon really is playing a major role in shaping us. Us being both the literal landscape of the United States, the built environment and the economy, but also us meaning working class people, our experiences as a class. The geographer and organizer Spencer Cox was quoted in a recent New York Times article saying that Amazon's warehouse zones are now, quote, the major working class space of suburban and exurban socialization. So even if you're building a tenant union or a political party, this is a major social space. It has a broader importance. Or, as Shama Sawant, a socialist member of the Seattle City Council, said in the same article, quote, If you look at the consciousness of Amazon workers, it's a guide to where the working class is as a whole. And this is true. Amazon is effectively running company towns in some parts of the country, especially during peak season, where it vacuums up every member of a family, every person on the block. In other words, it's relevant to all of us how ideas change on the shop floor in a place like the Bessemer Warehouse. The conversation that follows in this episode looks at that shaping role, the cumulative effects that add up to the macro, how Amazon shapes not only our physical landscape, but also the political one, how it influences politicians' actions, takes advantage of U.S. laws and dodges taxes, and also comes to act on people across the country as almost a force of nature, moving them from one place to another, injecting prosperity in one city or even one building, only to suck the life out of another part of the country. That's what Alec McGillis' book is about. McGillis is a reporter at ProPublica, and fulfillment is not so much about Amazon as it is about the country left in its wake, using the company much as we do on this show, because it represents the, or at least a, vanguard of a possible future. Without further ado, here's our conversation. 
So Alec, thank you so much for being here. Um, to start, why don't you tell listeners who aren't so familiar with your book what it's about, what argument you're making in it? Sure. And, and thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Um, this book actually started out not being a book about, about Amazon. Um, I want, I've wanted for years now to write a book about regional inequality in America, these growing disparities between places in this country. Um, gaps have been getting bigger and bigger between a small set of you know what I call winner-take-all, hyper-prosperous cities like Seattle, D.C., San Francisco, New York, Boston, and a much larger group of left-behind cities and towns. And I would see this gap when I go around the country as a national political reporter, going all the way back to like 2007, 2008, the Great Recession, early Obama years. And I'd be out there in the Midwest or the Appalachia or what have you and see just how how much a lot of these places were struggling. And then I'd come back to DC where I was based with the Washington Post and just be sort of overwhelmed by the prosperity and complacency and disconnect from what was happening around the country. And it really bothered me. I kept wanting to write about it. And then Trump gets elected and I see just what a huge role these regional disparities play in his election, how it's distorting our politics. And I think I really need to write about this now. And I end up choosing Amazon as the frame to tell the story of these disparities uh, for two main reasons. One is that the company is so ubiquitous now in our life, in our country. Uh, in our society. It just serves as a good thread to take you around the country to kind of show you what we're becoming in a kind of metaphorical sense. Um, and uh, and then the second reason I, reason I chose it, the more important reason is that the company is itself helping to drive these regional disparities. Um, you know, simply put, the this problem of regional uh, concentration of wealth in our country is closely tied to the concentration of our economy in, in, in just a few companies. Um, so what you see in, in all these different sort of sectors of the economy is a whole business activity in commerce, daily commerce that used to be spread all around the country, dispersed around the country, is now increasingly being kind of sucked or drawn into um, a handful of cities where these, these dominant giants are based. So media ad revenue that used to be kind of spread all around the country is now increasingly sucked into the Bay Area because Google and Facebook control 60% of all of that market. And then retail that used to be uh, revenue that used to be spread all around the country is now sucked into into Seattle, and you end up with um, with this kind of hyper prosperous, almost dystopian levels of wealth in Seattle. That is the basic premise of the book: the link between the problem of concentration of wealth in certain places in our country, um, which is unhealthy for both the winter cities and the left behind cities. It's, it's really unhealthy for both ends of the spectrum, and then the the problem of concentration of, of our economy in these monopolies and quasi-monopolies. Right. And to give people a sense of just how serious you're talking about these inequalities, so you write, in 1969, the 30 metropolitan areas with the highest per capita personal income included Detroit, Cleveland, and three other Midwestern cities. In 2019, only two Midwestern names, Chicago and Minneapolis, appeared on that list. Everything else was on the coast, right? So these coastal cities are growing wealthier and the gains are very uneven. Um, but what you also show in the book is that it's not just that there are rich cities and there are poor cities, right? There is actually internal inequality as well. So you go through the fact that there's no affordable housing, that there's incredible homelessness going on in some of these cities. Um, I think this is important because it's certainly the case that the way this is sort of talked about in some some parts of the media, for example, or among some politicians is like, you know, the coastal elites, as if New York is not also a ton of working class people, right? And so I think this is another thing that you sort of show that internal bifurcation that comes with, say, Amazon taking Seattle's office space, you know, and filling it. 
Right. This is so key that w when you end up with this, this profound regional inequality, it's really not good for either set of places. That In the winter cities, you end up with even greater inequality within the cities, the winter cities, because of the regional inequality. The more you have wealth flowing concentrated in a Seattle or in San Francisco or in a New York, that me it means that the inequality within those cities gets even more extreme. Um, and that's what you're seeing. And you end up with just you know, incredible affordable housing crisis, incredible homelessness, um, displacement, massive displacement of, of the sort you've seen in, for instance, Washington, D.C., where, you know, a serious study just a year or two ago finds 20,000, displacement of 20,000 um, black residents in, in D.C. in just the last decade or two, um, really tied to affordability. Um, you know, loss of character I mean, real sort of, you know, what you see, what, you've, what I described and what the Seattle chapter of the book is just this real loss of, of, of a kind of certain culture and, and, and character in Seattle as a result of this incredible um, surge of prosperity. And, and so it, it what, and what, what confounds me about this this problem is that that we don't connect it to to the regional issue enough. We talk about, say, the housing crisis in these cities, and we don't connect it to the fact that what, one reason you have this incredible unaffordability in, say, Washington D.C. is that we have so much wealth concentrated there, and then just up the road in Baltimore, forty miles away where I live, you have, you know, just. <laughs> incredible depopulation, incredible uh, blight and vacancy um, to the point where you are knocking down row houses, demolishing row houses by the hundreds and thousands, row houses that just 40 miles down the road are going for seven, eight, nine hundred thousand dollars And that's that's insane. There's something deeply out of whack there. And I wish that when we talked about the affordability issue in the winter cities, we, we connected it to, the, to this regional prosperity divide and and reckoned with the fact that if the prosperity and growth were spread more evenly around the country, you would not have as an acute an affordability crisis in the winter cities. But we don't think about that enough. We don't connect these these issues. Right. And I mean, so part of what your book shows is it's sort of showing how a company like Amazon is is sorting populations, right, geographically. Um, and I think you do this, you know, really evocatively, right, because of your reporting. Um, so for example, there's a scene where you're talking about how Amazon is sort of sorting parts of Ohio into different types of communities. Um, you write that Amazon chose the Columbus area for its location for Amazon Web Services U.S. East, and it picks three towns north of the city for its data centers, Hilliard, Dublin, and New Albany, which were, quote, the right sort of exurban communities to target, wealthy enough to support good schools for employees' kids, but also sufficiently insecure in their civic infrastructure and identity to be easy marks. Warehouses, meanwhile, go to other parts of the state outside of the city. You know, you get people to start basically following the jobs where they go. Right. So we're talking about people actually migrating in the classic fashion that um, that sort of capital has always worked. Right. Is that people go where the jobs are. And so communities are completely left behind where they aren't. Um, and I just wanted to ask you a little bit about sort of what you saw more generally in this sense in both the left behind and the winner take all cities. Um, because, I mean, the detail in this book, you know, you say Amazon is just sort of, it's almost an arbitrary object of study, right? It's just the ubiquitous company of the day. But I think it's such a rich one, right? It's part of what the show is about, is that it really is the mechanism that's doing this sorting. Exactly. I mean, you, the landscape is being sorted into, I guess, what you could call with three different kinds of cities. There's the headquarter cities, like the Seattle's and now the Washington, D.C., where you know the company just chooses a city that's already the wealthiest metro area in the country for its second headquarters, even though it's going to mean, you know, make it all 
that make that city even more expensive and congested. Um, you'd think they wouldn't want to be there, but they but they do because it's the um, because they've got the you've got the workforce there that the workforce they want, and of course it's the seat of federal power, and they want to be close to that. Now that federal intervention is their biggest threat, and then you have the warehouse towns in places like Baltimore, where just forty miles off the road, you now have incredibly four warehouses. I can't even keep up with it. In the book, I describe um, there being two with a third one coming in Baltimore, and now we're actually about to get a fourth. Um, three of them are going to be at Sparrows Point at the former steel mill in, outside Baltimore. And and then in Ohio, you, you likewise, you have this, um, the, the key thing about where they put the first warehouses in Ohio, when they finally decided to come into Ohio a few years ago, was they put them in the center of the state, which made sense, um, but they put them at the southern edge of the Columbus Beltway, um, because that that part of the state that sort of makes those warehouses accessible, barely accessible to the poorest parts of the state. Southern and southeast Ohio are really struggling, and and the company knows that if it put, puts its warehouses at that edge of the Beltway, it's about an hour drive for a lot of people, and they, a lot of people are desperate enough in those parts of the state to make that commute every day. Whereas the data centers end up in the wealthier exurbs, so you really you you've ended up with really headquarters cities, warehouse towns, and then the data center exurbs um, in Northern Virginia and and exurban uh, Columbus and some other places around the country. And the, the company is, is now so large, so powerful that its decisions about where to put stuff ends up in and of itself reshaping our our economic landscape. Um, and that's what's so really kind of out of whack about the situation now and that a single decision by this one company about where to put its second headquarters that would have such an incredibly outsized um, effect on our on our economy and, and our, on, our, on our landscape. Right. I mean, so obviously, maybe it goes without saying, but this is not how a lot of people think about how, you know, politics works in the United States, right? You know, we're putatively a democracy, you know, the public makes demands on elected officials and they carry out those demands imperfectly and so on, but at least they try. That, in fact, is not what your book shows at all, right? So elected officials, you know, Amazon is living rent-free in their heads, basically. They do not want to be seen as someone who's costing their area jobs, harming the convenience of their constituents and being able to access Amazon. Um, and, you know, I've written about this. I reviewed your book when it came out and I, I wrote about this scene um, where Amazon wants to build some new warehouses in Ohio. Right. And I just found this scene very useful in understanding what actually is taking place here. So it's 2015. Amazon reaches out to Jobs Ohio, which is a private nonprofit created by then Governor John Kasich to oversee negotiations over tax incentives with the company. Um, and you write every month a board called the Ohio Tax Credit Authority approved the incentives negotiated by Jobs Ohio. In July of 2015, it's Amazon's turn to meet with the tax board. The company promises 2,000 full-time jobs. In exchange, it wants a 15-year tax credit worth $17 million, in addition to a $1.5 million cash grant from the state liquor monopoly profits controlled by Jobs Ohio. The result is that the board approves the credit four to zero. They do it very quickly in the time it would take one to eat lunch in a totally anonymous room in a building in Ohio, right? So this is how Amazon is interacting with the state. It's the one with power meeting across from elected officials and basically demanding its conditions and it's those conditions are being met. Exactly. I mean, there was that meeting. I went to a couple of those meetings at the at the tax credit authority, and it was just it was surreal. 
it was a secret meeting, essentially. They, they sent out the agenda every Friday evening for a Monday morning meeting, um, you know, as late as they possibly can. Uh, you have to get through a couple of security checks, checkpoints in this office tower in Columbus. No one even really knows where the meeting is. I mean, it's completely, it's a, sort of a closely held, barely public thing. And when you finally get up there, everyone knows each other. It's all the, the basically the, the lawyers for the companies um, and the staff for the agency that decides on these tax credits all knows each other. They've all sort of already made the deals on how much they're going to, they're going to be giving the companies. And then the, the staff kind of gets gets up in front of the board and says, "We we think this is what the company should get. Um, if we don't give the company this, they say they're they're going to go elsewhere. That's they always work that into the the, the the pitch, and then and then it just gets rubber stamped. They're almost all rubber stamped, and you have um, kind of comical recusals because a lot of the people on the board have also worked for the companies. I mean, it's just completely baked in, um, and uh, and just and so and so utterly untransparent." And, and what's so confounding about it, especially confounding about it all, is that with Amazon, is that the state and the towns and cities are in a much better bargaining position than they realize because the company now really does kind of have to be everywhere. It's not like they can just, if it's a complete, basically it's a complete lie when they say that, well, if we don't get this deal here, we're going to go to the next state over. They're at the point now where they have to be everywhere. They're not going to go to the next state over. They have to be there because they promised one and two day delivery there. And, and yet the, the, the communities feel so desperate or so at, at the company's, you know, mercy that they feel like they have to have to make the deals. And even with all of this almost, you know, total control and say over the demands and the conditions of citing, you know, Amazon still wants more, right? I mean, this is, I've said this on the show before that Amazon really can't accept any limits to its profits and it's constantly, you know, finding new markets and otherwise finding ways to sort of get a penny here and there. And so tax dodging is a big part of that. Obviously, there's a lot of news about Bezos's personal, you know, lack of tax paying. Um, but the company also, you know, is driven by, for example, avoiding being assessed a sales tax in major states. That was a big part of its original citing and um, decisions in that respect. And there was a detail mentioned in the book that I found like really shocking um, and sort of absurd, which is that Amazon employees across the country often carried business cards that were completely misleading so that they couldn't be accused of actually operating in the states where they were operating. Can you tell people about what exactly was going on with the business cards? Sure. That, that, that actually, I, I should credit that one that, that I picked up. I think it was in uh, a magazine article, might have been in the New Yorker piece uh, by Charles Duhigg a couple years ago about Amazon. It might even have been in, in Brad Stone's first book. But it's an amazing detail in it, and it, because it goes to that whole initial roots of the, I mean, the company's initial success of the, and their initial growth, which was, it was all about avoiding sales taxes, avoiding having to assess sales taxes. And the way things worked for years until, you know, recent Supreme Court ruling was that with e-commerce, uh, e-commerce companies did not have to assess sales taxes if they didn't have a physical presence in a given state. Um, so, and that, that that played a huge role in Amazon deciding to go to Seattle in the first place. Uh, Bezos starting the company there instead of in Silicon Valley with all the other tech startups, because if he was in in Silicon Valley, they would have Valley they would have had to assess sales taxes on sales in California, in the biggest market. So it made sense to set up shop in a smaller state where it's not such a big deal if you have to assess sales taxes in a Washington state, um, as long as you've can still avoid that in California and get that five or six percent, seven percent advantage over all those regular bookstores. That was such a huge part of their initial success that they had that 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 
that basic price edge. And, and to keep that ruse going, that avoidance going, you had to stay out of states, especially big states. And they would end up trying to extend that advantage even after they really kind of were in states by pretending that they weren't there. So thus, thus you end up with employees carrying kind of bogus business cards. But it's also why they really didn't go into some states like Ohio, for instance, until not that long ago, because you had, Ohio was the seventh or eighth biggest state in the country. You wanted to avoid um, assessing sales taxes there. So in a way, you know, some of these states were, until very recently, were just being completely, I mean, the, 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 Truly, the commerce, all this revenue was being really kind of just sucked out of a lot of these states where you didn't even, because you didn't even have a warehouse yet in, in those states. Now, finally, all but a couple states have warehouses or at least getting at least the benefit of those, you know, a couple thousand low pay jobs. Um, for, for a long time, you, you weren't even getting that sort of compensation for all your lost commerce. Right. And you've mentioned, so you're in Baltimore, you're based in Baltimore. A lot of the book is written about Baltimore. Um, and you've mentioned Sparrows Point, which was the site of a steel mill, one of the largest in the world, part of Bethlehem Steel. Now it's Trade Point Atlantic, and there are Amazon warehouses there. I believe in the book, they had just opened the second one there. Um, and one person you follow who worked at the mill and then starts working at the warehouse is named Bill Badani Jr. And I'm sure you'll correct me if I mispronounce his name. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about him. So just for people to get a sense of this person, you know, he was working at the Sparrows Point Complex and in the early 2000s, an injury forced him to retire. Around that time, other factors pushed the company into bankruptcy. So Sparrows Point plant shuts down. Badani's monthly pension payment is cut from $3,000 to $1,600 a month. Now he's 69 years old and he's back at work as a forklift driver in the Amazon warehouse. So he's back on the exact same site working a very different type of job. He starts out making $12 an hour compared with the $35 an hour he earned at his steel job. So tell me about Bill. Um, I mean, he's a very memorable character, and also he is embodying the transformation of the U.S. economy, right? That's right. I mean, I just couldn't believe when I when I encountered him because I, that there was someone who so so uh, represented that that shift in what, what work, what sort of mass working class work looks like in this country. I was hoping to find someone who who had worked at the steel mill and whose grandson or granddaughter now worked in the, in the Amazon warehouse on that exact same piece of land. Um, and, in, and instead I found him who in his own life, his own, his own biography um, contained that shift. And what was so striking about him is how deeply he felt the loss of, of the kind of work that he was now the, the one kind of work to the other, um, you know, 30 years spent in the steel mill, what was the largest steel mill in the entire world in the, in the late fifties, 30,000 people working there, an entire, uh, company town directly attached to it with, you know, grid of streets and downtowns, a white downtown, a black downtown, all, you know, churches, just this amazing place. Um, this extraordinary industrial skyline, just right there, down there on the, on the water, um, outside Baltimore. Um, and, and, and he was there for 30 years. He grew up in that, in that town, he worked there for all these decades. His grandfather worked there, his dad worked there. And he himself just held all these different jobs. And they were all just, a lot of them so grueling, so difficult, so dangerous. He had several major injuries. He saw some people die. Um, and nonetheless, he found such meaning and purpose in that work and really just was deeply proud of it deeply and really enjoyed it um and and felt this incredible camaraderie with his with his 
coworkers, and um, he compared it really to the feeling of the sort of foxhole feeling of being in Vietnam, what he felt there with his fellow soldiers there. And then the mill closes. He retires early after his latest injury. Mill gets not just mill doesn't just close; it gets wiped off the face of the earth. It's so eerie. You go there and it's just gone. This entire town, entire industrial works, just wiped off the face of the peninsula. You go there and your car still, your GPS in your car still calls out the different. Um, the, the old streets that are no longer there, you know, B Street, C Street, D Street, gone, and and has now been replaced by this growing, metastasizing warehouse park. And and he gets a job in the exact same piece of land, like exactly where the tin mill was, was now the the, the where Amazon warehouse. And he starts driving a forklift there because he needs some more money because his pension got whacked after the mill went bankrupt, and Wilbur uh, Wilbur Ross whacked the pension. And so he goes back to work and he ends up making, like, as you said, making less than a third of what he made before. And he's driving a forklift and he finds the work not only much less, of course, much less well-paid, but so profoundly less meaningful. Just all he's doing now, before he was making steel, he was making steel that was going into, into bridges and buildings around the country. Now he's moving pallets of stuff off the truck, stuff made halfway around the world into this warehouse um, just constantly under incredible pressure from his, from these young supervisors to, to, to up his rate, not enough time to go to the bathroom. Um, he's an older guy, so he has to go to the bathroom quite a lot. Doesn't have time to get to walk across the big warehouse to the men's room. And so a couple times he has to pull up his forklift and sneak behind the forklift to take a leak. Um, just utterly undignified. And he barely lasted this job for a couple of years. It's much less, much less dangerous than the old job, um, but it's also much less well-paid, much less meaningful, and he just can't hack it. And, and after a couple of years, he gets some flack for bringing some, some labor um, literature into the, into the warehouse, and he decides to quit on the spot. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I think doesn't go mentioned so far in this interview is the role of unions, right? So Bill you know, found this steelwork a place of camaraderie and bonding with his fellow workers. And part of that was that they were union workers, right? And part of what's going on in Amazon is that there is no union presence whatsoever, right? And that's how we get incredibly low wages and this immense alienation, right? And so, you know, I think that's an important part of the story about what's happening with this engineering of work is that unions are really being kept out and destroyed. Um, And obviously we've seen and discussed that on the show about what's going on in Bessemer and in other parts of the country. Um, But also Bill, you know, is not just some mere victim of like the broader forces of society, right? You know, you write in the book that he drops by the United Steelworkers office and he collects material on the right to organize and he hands it off to a young guy who's sort of a vocal guy at the warehouse who's been training to operate. He's been training that guy to operate the forklifts. Um, And can you just tell people about what happens? So you mentioned that Bill gets sort of reprimanded for this. Right. He, he, he realizes just what a, what a complete absence this, this is the absence of, of, of unions and solidarity in the warehouse. And he knows viscerally that this is one of the big differences between his work at at Beth Steel and his work now in the warehouse. And, um, and he sees just how workers are, these workers of the warehouse are just completely at the behest of their supervisors, constantly just being driven to, to, to rate expectations like that are just way too excessive. And, and, you know, one reason of course, that the turnover at the warehouse is so high that it's just really kind of intolerable levels of productivity expectations. And, and so he does, he stops by the old union hall um, near the warehouse one day and picks up some very basic rudimentary, 
you know, pro-union literature and, and just hands it off to one of the, one of the young guys who he, he figures is, is sort of receptive to this and says, you guys, you guys really got to think about getting a union in here. Um, and, and that young guy starts talking with another young guy and there's starts you end up with a little bit of initial kind of union ferment and a supervisor finds out about it. Um, the, the two young guys are suddenly vanished. They're, they're sent home. He, Bill assumes on some kind of a, some kind of suspension. And even though it was actually in the middle of the holidays when you think they would have wanted all hands on deck and, and then Bill is, is reprimanded for having brought the literature in and, and then there's another uh, altercation about another bathroom break and being docked time for another bathroom break. And that's when he decides, you know, basically take this job and shove it. And he, and he walks out um, in the middle of the, of, of the holiday rush. Um, and, you know, in all these debates around Bessemer and around organizing at Amazon, you know, and how to think about that, I really have kept coming back to, to the best deal comparison. And, and in the, that chapter, I go way deep into the history of the steel mill and, and just sort of show you how things were before they got the union. The fact is that things were in so many ways so similar to what we now have at the warehouses. We've kind of come full circle. We're back, back in the 1910s, 1920s, you had also just incredibly high product productivity demands from these plutocratic owners, you know, an owner who was had the largest mansion in New York city and, and an entire sort of peasant village that he built for himself in Western, Western PA. Um, and, uh, very sort of, you know, kind of echoing Bezos now with it, with the $500 million yacht and all the other trappings of plutocratic wealth that he's got for himself. And, and so the incredibly high productivity expectations, the, um, the lack of any representation, the crazy hours, the total lack of say on the job. And then over time, it took decades, of course, over time, they managed to get organized. It wasn't until 1941, late, late 41, that they get organized, uh, that they get the, get the union in at Beth Steele. And, and, then, and then things just dramatically change. You end up with much higher pay, um, much more say in the job, fewer injuries. Well, now that workers have more say in the job, there's and less crazy productivity expectations. And you end up with the job becoming a sustainable middle-class family supporting kind of job, still a very tough job, grueling, dangerous, no doubt. But it's a job that, that these guys take great pride in and want to stay, spend decades at. And, and now at that exact same piece of land on Sparrow's point, we're back to square one with, um, with the warehouses. And the whole question now is whether over time we can build up that work into something that becomes more middle-class family sustaining career sustaining. Um, and, uh, and that's and that's really what's at stake. I mean, that those warehouse jobs are now the new mass employment option in the way that the mill used to be. You used to go down to the mill when you just needed a job, didn't have a college degree, didn't know what else you're going to do with yourself. You went down to the to the mill. You went to the factory. You maybe went to the shopping mall. Now you go to the warehouse. And and so you know the whole question of what working class life is going to look like in this country, uh, you know, sort of the mass level is now really has is is all about these warehouses. They are where it's at. Yeah, I think that is a very appropriate way to put it. And I mean, this is one thing that I've certainly said before and written about that, you know, I think people sometimes maybe fetishize jobs from the past as having been innately in some way more humane or better. You know, this thinking that like the steel job, there was camaraderie and it was more you know, acceptable or livable. That was all a product of organization. Right. And so, I mean, we're going to do an episode about the steel organizing campaigns because I do see steel as sort of the historical um, comparison to look to when talking about organizing Amazon, I think it's very useful. Um, but yeah, keeping in mind that these jobs 
most of these jobs always have sucked. Um, and it's only a matter of what workers can sort of wrest from bosses that will make them um, livable or humane. The last thing I want to ask you, Alec, before I let you go, is about what's happened since this book came out. Um, obviously, you had some somewhat shocking timing for this book in that you know Amazon has, I won't go over it in detail for the listeners of this show, they've heard it all before, but Amazon has expanded, you know, almost, it's almost impossible to think about how much expansion we've seen. So the first 10 months of 2020, the company added more than 425,000 non-seasonal employees, bringing its total to around, you know, a million employees. Um, the immensely profitable sector like Amazon Web Services has just skyrocketed in its profits. Um, so Amazon has already was somewhat infrastructural in this country, especially. But now it's really become embedded in people's lives in a way where before the pandemic, it wasn't quite there. But people really relied on it during the pandemic. And it's it's grown in response. So I'm just curious from where you sit, you know, what's happened since the book came out? Where is are things going from where you see it? Yeah, I mean, it's it is just it's hard to grasp just how much more dominant and large and pervasive it's become in the last year. And in a way, we are almost kind of reluctant to even to reluctant to grasp it because we all feel some kind of um, some culpability or uh, some we all we're all aware of our role in that incredible growth. I and mean, it was all of us in a way that decided to embrace with extraordinary alacrity the kind of the the one click approach this past year. Um, you know, I think a lot of us felt who might have in the past felt some compunction or guilt about using Amazon um, or other forms of kind of one click life um, felt in a way felt like it was no not just that we didn't could 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 use Amazon without any guilt. We could actually feel a sense of virtue in, in using it and that the you know the 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 pile of boxes outside the house or in the in the recycling pile out back were, were became became a sign of virtue a sign that you were being cautious and it was it was really extraordinary watching that happening around me and you one couldn't help but wonder of course like to, to what extent that embrace was almost possibly in excess of what was actually kind of required by public health mandates and 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 good best measures and and to what extent we were just um even going above and beyond sort of using that as a as a sort of uh sort of a rationale to to simply just go all in on this kind of consumer approach of just the the quote convenience of the seamless amazon buy and and it's going to be very interesting now to see whether we pull back from that at all and sort of moderate um moderate that those kind of habits um and return to re-engage with with the world around us, you know, not just in our, in our shopping, but, but our, just everything, just getting out of that hunker down mode of the one click, the all digital, the everything in that atomized laptop mode and in return to not just the stores, but you know, our, the theaters and the movies and, and everything else that makes our towns and cities worth, worth living in. And on the one hand, I knew that it was somehow good for the book in the sense that it was making this one company so much more dominant and, um, and so much so even more important, even more force to be reckoned with. But at the same time, I found it just immensely disheartening and, and depressing because I, I just saw, I was already already so aware of the the, the effect that it's had on the landscape and, and that this sort of the, the, this you know atomizing effect, this isolating effect of this whole this whole way of living, and and so to see it be doubled or trebled was just you know I found just you know, immensely alarming. Um, and I, I don't, I really, you know, people, people have asked me, you know, do you, do you advocate a boycott? And I say, no, I, I just, I, but I do think that there is a, 
I, I just hope that there's that there's some moment now where we can where we can at least moderate and un, and unlearn some of those habits and and really start thinking more clearly about what what is behind the click and that is really what the book seeks seeks to show you is all all the cost consequences not only in in the warehouses themselves and the workers being you know driven so hard but more broadly just across our whole landscape and how so many of these these disparities that have become so unhealthy for our countries so unhealthy for our politics so unhealthy for our cities are are rooted in in this in this one company and in this extraordinary dominance well alec i want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to me it's been a pleasure speaking with you thanks alex really enjoyed it that's our show this week thanks so much for listening this is primer i'm alex press joined as ever by my producer sarah hurd and thanks to jacobin and to nate roos for the music i'll talk to you all next week